Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. for you this morning, and it's this. Jesus Christ is the one true king over all the world. That is the best news that any person anywhere has ever heard come past their ears and hit their tympanic membrane and register into their brain. Jesus Christ is Lord over all, King of kings, Lord of lords. I do, it's, it's really interesting when we come around to like big elections, presidential or <clears throat> gubernatorial or whatever elections might be where there's someone that's gonna be um, elected into a high office. It's really fascinating and entertaining to see who says they're gonna leave the, the country if person A wins or person B wins. You've all seen them on the news or on their Twitter account or it's called X now. I don't know what to call that now, Tweety, Tweety book. But... It's really interesting to see people say, if so-and-so wins, I'm leaving the country, you know, I'm moving to Canada. And if person B wins, I'm moving to Texas or whatever it, it might be that they, they, they would say and claim. What's even more um, entertaining is to see who actually follows through <laughs> with what they promised. There, there's a reality behind that fear in those comments though that I think kind of is important to what we're talking about today. Here's what is behind that reaction of fear. The person at the top of any society that I'm in affects my life, all right? The person at the top affects me. And, and depending on the amount of power that they're given and that they wield, the effect can be rather profound. Am I willing to stay in a situation where this person who's been elected or been appointed can turn my world upside down? That's the fear and the question kind of at the heart of these statements of, if so-and-so wins, I'm gonna leave. Is, am I willing to stay here if that person wields authority over my life? Now, how this relates to what we're preaching today, and by the way, open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 17. Uh, Michelle already read it. Thank you, Michelle. Um, we're gonna zero in on a few parts of that, but Acts chapter 17. But here's the deal. Whether we know it or not, the gospel that we, Jesus' church, believe and preach and have been entrusted with has this same world-upending effect. Because at the core of our beliefs as Christians is the claim that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is king of the earth. That is a core part of the gospel of Jesus. Now, this is the best news ever. But to many, the implications of this could be quite disturbing. Jesus is king, that message, this is wonderful news with consequence. It's wonderful news, but it has consequence. We don't just say it and say that we believe it it has consequence for our life. Because if this is the truth, the implications run deep into every part of life, don't they? If Jesus is my king, that's not just a statement. If someone is king, becomes king over a country, over a place, 
That has deep implications. It's going to change your life, maybe for the good, maybe for the bad, but it will change your life. How I live, how I treat others, how I spend my money, how I use my mouth, how I use my body. If Jesus is king, he has rights to rule all of this, doesn't he? Doesn't he? And if you don't buy the line that Jesus is king, that he was a man who is God, who was crucified, died, raised from the dead, and is now king of the world, if you don't believe that, it can create in you a great deal of suspicion toward anyone who says that he is. Because you're like, well, I didn't vote for him. And, and, and if that's not true, then people who believe it's true may just use their version of truth to try to control me and tell me how to live my life morally. Tell me what I should and shouldn't do. And if it's not true, they have no right to. So you can see how this news that Jesus is king, for those who believe it is good news, but for those who don't, there's an eye of suspicion on it, isn't there? And if it's not true, rightfully so. If Jesus isn't the king, we have no business telling people he is. But he is. Two things I want us to onboard into our thinking and behavior from the passage this morning. First one is this. I want us to clearly understand that at the core of the gospel message we believe and we preach is the truth that Jesus is king. At the core of it. It's not a side deal. It's not an ancillary statement. It's not an add-on. At the core of the gospel message is the message that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the king. And the second thing I want us to onboard is this just to be aware and prepare for the common responses that will come to the gospel message. When people we speak this message to don't respond kindly or don't respond favorably, we, we should be ready for that. We should have a gracious response to that. Our hearts should be prepared to realize that not everyone is going to receive this, at least right now. And we should not only be prepared to share the message of Jesus' gospel, but we should be prepared to respond graciously to the responses we get to that message. Now, the background is this. Last week, Kyle preached, and in his message, uh, Paul and his companions were in Philippi, and there was no Jewish synagogue there. So Paul and Silas and Timothy had to embrace a new approach. They went down to this river where there was a place of prayer. They met uh, mainly women, and, 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 a, and a discipleship movement started there because of the women that they met and taught the gospel to. They had to embrace a new approach. But in today's passage, we see Paul and, and company in, in Thessalonica, now in Thessalonica, this is the capital city of Macedonia. So if you look on a map, like, you know, Greece is here. Macedonia would have been right here. I believe it's modern day Greece now, but it was a region called Macedonia. Thessalonica is a capital city of Macedonia, this region. And it's very, very loyal to Caesar, who was the emperor of the Roman empire, who held sway at that moment in time. And Thessalonica did have a synagogue a place where Jews came and worshiped the one true God. And so Paul went there as was his custom. He went to this synagogue. 
And here was Paul's approach to preaching Jesus. I want you to look at Acts 17. I want you to look at verse two. Read verse two with me. And we wanna see how Paul approached those who were listening here. Remember, these are Jews. Remember, these are people who honor and believe the old, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, scriptures the, the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures they had at this point. These are people who believed and honored this. So verse two, and Paul went in to the synagogue as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned from them, from the script, with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Notice the two parts there. The first thing Paul does is he uses the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, to build a profile of the Christ. Before speaking about Jesus, he goes to the scriptures and says, let's look at what the scriptures say about what this Christ, this Messiah, will be like and what he will do and what will happen to him. So he builds his profile without inserting Jesus' name into it so that these Jewish people could see that their scriptures validated a Messiah who wouldn't just come and overthrow, but a Messiah who would come, would suffer, would die, and then raise from the dead. Paul proves to them from their scriptures that their current profile of Messiah wasn't complete. Remember how the people reacted when Jesus came in to Jerusalem riding on a donkey? And his disciples are saying, Lord, is it at this time you're gonna restore the kingdom? Are you gonna take over now? Are you going to conquer? Are you gonna bring the armies in and are we gonna conquer and kick Caesar out and rule the world now? Is this the time? And Jesus is like, you guys, I've been telling you forever, I have to go to the cross. The average Jew of this day did not have as part of their profile of the Messiah that he must suffer, die, and raise from the dead. That was not a part. They just were thinking about all the ruling and conquering parts. That will happen. So he first builds a profile of the Christ, specifically that the Christ would die and be raised. In 1 Corinthians 1.20, this reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.23, um, where Paul says, that this crucifixion, this death of this king, this Messiah, is foolishness to those who don't believe. Because Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom. And to say there's a king coming in who's gonna take over the world and he's gonna do it by letting you kill him. That in this world sounds crazy. That the one lying dead on the battlefield is the winner. That sounds crazy in our culture, in that culture as well. But he builds this profile that that's exactly what the Messiah would do. So before speaking specifically of Jesus, Paul establishes Messiah's profile from the Old Testament as one who was prophesied to suffer and be raised. And then the second thing he does is he spoke of Jesus, telling them that Jesus indeed died and rose from the dead, and that this was proof that Jesus was the exact profile of the Christ. Here's the profile, here's what the Messiah would look like, and then he shows Jesus and says, see how they match? See how he's exactly what the Old Testament has been telling us for thousands of years. Now, I wanna drill down a little bit on this word Christ, that Jesus was the Christ. 
What does this mean? What does that word mean? We say it all the time. We sing it in songs. We talk about Jesus Christ. But oftentimes we use that as like Jesus's last name. Like, what's your name? Jesus. Oh, what's your last name? Christ. <laughs> Just, hey, and if that's what you thought, that, that's okay. That's not the way it is. Jesus had a different last name. Probably Bar Joseph or something like that, son of Joseph. But that's not his last name. You see, Christ, that's just the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. And that's the word Christos used for the Greek language to translate the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. So Christ and Messiah, same word. Does that make sense? Christ and Messiah, same word. And they both mean anointed one. Christ, that's where we get the word christen from. When you anoint, when you christen something, you're anointing it. Christ means anointed one. Mashiach means one smeared with oil, anointed one. So Christ and Messiah are interchangeable. They both mean anointed one. And in Israel, the kings were coronated by way of anointing with oil. So when you're calling someone an anointed one, in this context, what are you claiming about this person? That they're a king. Christ is not just a religious statement. It's a political one. It's calling him the king. So Christ equals Messiah equals king. When you read the words, Jesus Christ, you must read it, Jesus King. Jesus the King. King Jesus. Christ Jesus. Jesus Messiah Christ the King. The very term Jesus Christ, every time you read it, is a proclamation that Jesus is the King. You want to see proof that Jesus is the king? Every time you see Jesus Christ, realize it. That's a claim. That's a claim that Jesus is the promised anointed king. It's a royal title. And this explains a very harsh reaction that both Jews and Gentiles have in Thessalonica, doesn't it? Because he's not just saying he's a religious figure. There are political overtones to this. Their complaint, when they bring it to the people who are in charge of the city of Thessalonica, their complaint is this. Paul is claiming that there's another king other than Caesar. When Paul was preaching his gospel, and they heard it and were bothered by it, and they took it to the authorities, their complaint was, Paul is preaching another king other than Caesar. That was their complaint. That was their, uh, that was their, what's, I'm losing words, that Thank you, accusation, my goodness, who said that? Thank you, accusation. That was their accusation, my brain, against, against Paul. And it was a true accusation. That's precisely what Paul was saying. Now, I bet they spun it in a way, like Paul's trying to talk about this guy, like it's gonna overthrow Caesar by force with armies. Now, that wouldn't be true. That's not how Jesus did what he did in the first century. But the accusation is valid. That's precisely what Paul is saying. 
Now here in our context, we might say, so what? What's the big deal that he's saying Jesus is my king? We, we gotta step into their context. The whole stability of the Roman Empire laddered up to Caesar being the ultimate and most authoritative king and even claims that he was a god. So when you come along and say there's another king that doesn't submit to Caesar, that's treason. To question or work against Caesar as the ultimate king, this was considered treason as was a capital crime. Insurrection was punishable by death. This is a big deal. And we can't deny that at the core of the gospel message is the belief that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the global king of kings. This is core to what we believe and preach. And he proved it by dying and raising back to life. No king in history has ever beat death. When they die, their reign is over, kaput. They cannot reign anymore. Jesus died. The difference between him and every other king is this. He shook it off. He got back up. He raised from the dead. And so what enemy is there now that could defeat this king? You can answer that. None. The final enemy, not a, not a foreign army, not a political overthrow, but the final enemy that puts you out of the running for king like you're dead. That enemy was defeated by Jesus. And so if he defeated that enemy, what king is greater than him? What king can overcome him? None. And so this claim was offensive to both Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. And to this day, it's still offensive. Today, it seems you can believe whatever you want, but you've crossed a line when you claim exclusivity of truth or the way to God. And this is precisely the claim of Jesus' gospel, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Those are his words, John 14, 6. These are not someone else's words about him. Those are Jesus' words about himself, that he's the only way to the Father. And so in Thessalonica, Paul experiences the same harsh reaction as, as many do today by proclaiming this message, that Jesus is the one true king of earth. But I love the reaction we see in Berea. So he gets kicked out of Thessalonica. He goes on to a, a, a town that was close. What a contrast we see here. Verse 11, look at that with me. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see to see if these things were so. They received it with eagerness, but then they examined the scriptures to see if they were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So ultimately, Paul and Silas and Timothy get the same treatment in Berea. They get kicked out too. They get run out too. But before this happens, the Jews in the synagogue in Berea have a very different response than those in Thessalonica. It says two things. First, they received the word with eagerness. What word? What message? I believe that Luke is referring to the same word Paul gave in Thessalonica. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. And these Jews received that with eagerness. The second thing it says, though, is that after listening to Paul's message, they took some days to read through the scriptures to vet Paul's message. Paul's claims 
were that Jesus was the Christ based on scripture. The Bereans seemed to have trusted Paul's message, but also verified it. They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was so. And then it says in the next sentence, therefore many believed. In Thessalonica, some Jews believed. In Berea, many Jews believed, also Gentiles. Why? Because the Old Testament proves the claim. The Bereans aren't the only ones who can do this. You can too. You can open up the Bible and read the New Testament, or sorry, the Old Testament, and see the profile it paints of who the Christ, the King of the world would be. And you can see that Jesus' being and life and actions perfectly match. The Bereans did this. They read the scriptures. And then they compared it with what Paul said of Jesus. And they said, this is the same person. This Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Friends, our noble response must be this. We, as God's people, must study all the scriptures to see Jesus, not just the New Testament. I thank God for the New Testament. But the New Testament stands on the foundation of the old. Don't just read the New Testament. Read the Old Testament too with an eye for Jesus, the Messiah. After Jesus' resurrection, he showed his disciples all through the scriptures how it was speaking about him. Read the Old Testament, and when you do, put on lenses of, I want to see Jesus. Let me see Jesus in the Old Testament. It's how Jesus has taught us to read the Old Testament. And if you look with an honest eye, you will see that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah of Israel. And if Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, something else is also true. That by the very claims of the Old Testament, Jesus is also the Savior King of Kings, the King of all the earth. Here are the implications. We need to form our minds in three ways. First way, when I trust Jesus, he not only saves me, but he also rules me. Kings rule. Kings have authority. And Jesus being the king of kings over all things, there is nothing and no one who lays more claim to your life. My family, nurture your relationship to Jesus as savior, but not only as savior, nurture your relationship to him as king. What does that mean? Don't neglect this part of your relationship with Jesus. It affects everything. It's at the core of the gospel. You have not been saved by just a savior. You've been saved into the family of a king who rules you. It's not get me out of hell and then I do whatever I want. It's you have saved me into a family, into a kingdom where you rule and I now serve at your pleasure. It's so easy to think of Jesus only as our savior and that he is without question. He is savior and he is friend and he dropped so low to save us. But to approach Jesus as savior but not as king is actually an incomplete gospel. It's a sub gospel. 
Part of the good news of the gospel is that there is a king who will one day establish his kingdom on this earth in full and everything will be as it should be. We get to live that way now. We get to be time travelers. We're part of a kingdom who, that has not yet, it's come, but it hasn't been established across the entire earth yet. We get to live as if it's already true that Jesus is king now over us, over his people. That's how we live now. We're time travelers. We live as if he is already reigning over the entire world. And that day will come. Will it seem natural to you when he does? Will it seem normal to you to respond to him as the global king by how you live now. There is no person, place, thing, organization, political party, or nation that should have your undying allegiance other than Jesus. It is his kingdom you belong to above any other. We as Christians live out now what reality will be then when Jesus rules over the entire earth. Does this mean that you can't be loyal to other people or associations? No. We should have holy loyalties to those who God has put us in community with. We should seek the good of the, the city and the country, our state. We should seek the good. But when that comes in conflict with King Jesus, we drop our allegiance to that which is around us and is man-made, and we keep our allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The second thing I want us to onboard into our minds is this. When I make disciples, when I go and share the good news of Jesus and make disciples, I'm calling people into a relationship with a savior, but also a king. Jesus being king is a part of the gospel message. Trusting Jesus as king is a narrow road and will result in faithful obedience to this king. As you obey the calling to make disciples, don't lose heart when the message of Jesus' kingship is rejected. The gospel is the best and most joyous news in the world that I don't have to earn salvation, that it's been done for me and that I receive it by trusting King Jesus. But he, we humans are a stubborn lot, aren't we? Aren't we? Just admit it, you are, you're stubborn. And accepting someone else to rule me is one of the harder things to do, am I right? And so rejection is to be expected. Not everyone at every time is gonna be open to being ruled by King Jesus. It happened to Jesus. Rejection happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. It has happened to every person who's ever been serious about the call to make disciples, and it will happen to you. Don't lose heart. Rejoice. Because Jesus is your king, and rejoice. Even that hardest heart, Jesus can warm and win. Don't lose heart when the gospel is rejected and rejoice when it is received because it's a miracle. For anyone to say, I'll be ruled by King Jesus is a miracle. Third thing, I want us to onboard into our minds. I must expect a variety of responses and respond with empathy. Over the past several weeks, we've seen a very predictable response to the gospel as Paul preaches it. He goes into a situation Religious Jews who should have recognized Messiah, they had the scriptures to prove it, it was him. These religious Jews who should have re received him reject Jesus. And then Gentiles whose hearts were hard and, and reject a dying king is foolishness. It's foolishness. You say he died, he's obviously not the king. They reject him. And a third response, 
Always happens, Jews and Gentiles both, whose hearts were prepared by the Holy Spirit and accepted the truth of Jesus as king. There were always Jews who resisted on religious basis. There were always Greeks who, or Gentiles who, who resisted and rejected on philosophical or wisdom basis, but there were always Jews and Greeks who responded to the truth with faith. This truth that Jesus is king will have a disrupting effect on our worldview, our relationships, our politics, and on and on and on. It should turn our world upside down. They said these men who are turning the world upside down, another accurate accusation. Our culture does not see Jesus as king. And when he is, it will turn your world upside down. This message that Jesus is king is just as disruptive to the socio-political powers and norms of today as it was under the Roman Empire. If Jesus has become your king, it will likely cause you to run somewhat opposite. Even to feel a bit socially or politically or culturally homeless or out of place. Like I don't, no matter what group of people that I tend to align with more, I don't feel completely at home. Because there's parts of that socio-cultural belief system that are still evil and of this world and I can't buy it because Jesus is my king. If you find yourself completely at home with any political party or any group association that is man-made, realize that there may be a part of your life that still needs to come into further surrender to King Jesus because no man-made group is going to fully or even partially take their cues from King Jesus and you will feel a bit lost. Every time the election cycle comes around, I feel lost because it's about power, not about justice and love. It's about money, not about generosity. It's about how long can I stay in power and rule how many people and with how much authority and that's not the way of Jesus. He came and died to rule. His first throne was a cross. And so I always feel a little bit different, homeless from the groups that would want me on their roster. But as you move into this obedience to make disciples, ask God for empathy and mercy for those who resist it. They don't have to believe it. And there is no part in scripture that tells us we have the right to force it. The gospel, though wonderful, truly is threatening to the way we've all learned to survive here. So respond with grace. Now there's two things I want you to think about in onboarding into your actions. The first one, know and understand the scriptures. The reason that the Bereans were receptive to truth was because they were willing to put in the effort to verify it in scripture. Um, we, as a culture, are getting lazier and lazier. And I'm speaking of myself as well. I'm not saying that's the young kids. Actually, the young kids are showing me up right now. Uh, but we are getting lazier and lazier and very unwilling to put in the work to learn something or to understand something if it can't be accomplished by watching a three-minute video on YouTube. 
Repent from that. Travis, repent from that. We've got to put in the work. The Bereans did, and it was called noble. You need to know and understand the broad narrative of scripture for two reasons. One, to know our God so deeply and be saturated with his truth so that you will be able to spot deception when it comes to spot truth as well. Second reason, to tell the story of God and his amazing gospels to his amazing gospel to those you know. You are called to make disciples, but do you know what to say? Do you know what scripture says about Jesus? Are you so ready with an answer for why you believe that it could roll off the tip of your tongue even on a hospital bed like my friend did when he was in agonizing pain and someone came to Christ while he was in the worst pain of his life because the gospel was on his lips. So we need to know and understand the scripture. Second thing, we need to pray for the salvation of those you know. Oh, church, if I could have you do anything, it's not me having you. If I could invite you, if I could spur you on to anything today, definitely giving yourself over to the scriptures, surrendering to Jesus as king, but, but in your actions, praying for those who don't know Jesus. You have so many people around you who don't know Jesus. It isn't you who accomplishes the miracle of faith in, in their hearts. And so trying to make disciples without prayer is like trying to make an apple pie without apples. You've missed the main ingredient. If we're trying to make disciples, but we are not praying that the Holy Spirit would prepare them for truth, we are doing it without the power. Read John 16. The Holy Spirit is the one who prepares hearts for the gospel. The gospel, as good as it is, will have the same effect on unprepared hearts as it did on the people who resisted it that we read about in today's message. It will hit hard soil and it will be rejected. All through Acts, we see the apostles being given instructions by the Holy Spirit on who to go and preach the gospel to. But we also see so much prayer before doing it. So pray urgently for those around you who don't know Jesus and the ones whom God prepares their heart will respond in faith to the message of King Jesus. Guys, it's as, as practical as make a list and pray faithfully and fervently every day for those people and watch God work. Just start with one. One person that you write down and in the morning when you get up and spend some time with the Lord, pray for that person. God, God, soften his heart, soften her heart. Let me be aware of when you're drawing me into conversations that can move from surface to significant to spiritual. And Holy Spirit, would their heart be ready so that when I give the seed of the gospel, it meets soil that's ready to grow it. Pray. Pray for them. It's our calling to make disciples, but it's the Holy Spirit who does it pray for them. We want to celebrate communion this morning. So I want you to take this cup and I'd love for the band to come on back up. Um, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul talks about the gospel being foolish uh, to unbelieving world and, and, and wisdom to those who do believe. I want you just to maybe close your eyes and soak this in. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This gospel we preach seems like utter foolishness in the world around us and it's understandable why. But it's the most beautiful thing in the world when you realize what this symbolizes. This bread, this cup, Jesus' body broken, his blood spilt. If we are aware that Jesus is the king, it makes this story all the more beautiful and powerful. Because what king of planet earth who's ever ruled opened the door to his throne room, said, come in, jump up on my lap. Let me heal your wounds. Let me love you. Let me listen to your, your needs. Let me fulfill your heart with joy. And if you have a death sentence, let me take it for you. What king has ever done that? What president, what prime minister, what premier has ever done that for one of the citizens of his kingdom? The answer is no one. But our high king of all the universe stepped down and, and took our dirt onto himself and he died for us. When we realize that he's a king, it makes his suffering all the more powerful. What king stoops so low? The answer, our king, Jesus the one who came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the king we remember today. So would you take the bread? Preparing your heart. Would you thank Jesus, high king of heaven, for stooping so low to save such a poor beggar like me. And let's eat this bread in remembrance of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, what king bleeds for his people? I know a lot of kings who will have his people bleed for him but I don't know if I know of any kings who will bleed for their people. Thank you, Jesus, for being a king who bled for me, who bled for my brothers and sisters. Jesus, we drink this in memory of the bleeding king. Drink it together. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you that you lead us and guide us all the days of our life. So with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.